activists around the world, in Australia, the US, Switzerland and many more countries gathered weekly on Fridays in 2019 for as long as they could up to the corona pandemic in spring 2020. More than ever, climate activists want politicians to take action now. The threat of climate change has some similarities to the corona pandemic. COVID-19 and climate change evoke uncertainty on many levels and are both global problems that affect every single one of us. You, who's listening to the ETH podcast right now, as well as me, Jennifer Kakshuri, who's your host. This episode is part of our ETH podcast series regarding uncertainty. Well, there's a lot of similarities between a pandemic crisis and, and the climate crisis, I would say. In both cases, we're talking about some kind of public good. In one case, it's the planet. In the other case, it's the public health. This is ETH professor Rito Knuti, an internationally respected physicist and expert in the human contribution to climate change. In both cases, the problems, at least at first, seem to be a kind of abstract, uh, far away. We don't quite know how to deal with it. And humans are not particularly good in dealing with these kinds of problems. Even though we're claiming to do policy that is based on facts, uh, we often act based on previous experience and, uh, and feelings, gut feelings and opinions of others. So uh, there are similarities, but there's also, of course, differences. Climate change is a much more long-term problem that you have to deal with that you cannot solve with a vaccine or a short lockdown. I mean, the pandemic is just a very small taste of what is going to happen if we don't take the biodiversity crisis and the climate change crisis seriously. This is Annabel Ehmann. She's working on her master's thesis in agricultural economics at the ETH at the moment. Annabelle is not only a student, she's also an activist and therefore believes in change passionately. She's so passionate that during one of the climate strike protests, she even camped on the concrete floor overnight in the capital of Switzerland. She slept on the Bundesplatz in Bern. The Bundesplatz is a big square where the Swiss Federal Palace of Switzerland and the National Bank are located. It was very exciting and wonderful time to be with so many people and to be so sure about what we are doing. I never felt so sure about something that is so urgent to do. But I was also a bit sad that it has to be us who do this when at the same time people are acting like there is nothing wrong in our world. Climate change never hit us like the pandemic because it never created this existential fear in us. It always seemed like something far out into the future. And every now and then we would experience something which would push it up on the political agenda, whether it was a heat wave in summer or a hurricane hitting a big city or, or something like that. And, and then it would rise up on the, on the public agenda and we'd, we'd think about it. But it never drove us to do the kinds of behavioral changes that we did for coronavirus. I'm Tony Pat. I'm professor of climate policy at ETH in the Department of Environmental Systems Science. In his research, Tony looks at ways how to get to zero emissions. It will be a long way to get there, but Tony has had an overall view since decades. He's more optimistic now than in the past when it all began for him. I grew up 
on a farm in, in Massachusetts and just loved being outside. And I especially loved winter. I loved snow and ice. We had a pond on our farm where I, I grew up skating and playing ice hockey on it with friends. And and I would go cross-country skiing through the forest and, and alpine skiing and all sorts of things. And in, interestingly, we also we had a neighbor who was a BMW salesman and he had a snowmobile. And I would also go and drive his snowmobile. And I loved that too. I, In fact, I, I love driving things, which is a little bit of a a contradiction to this all. So that's why I'm, you know, I'm hoping for electric everything so you can <laughs> still drive those things. But anyway, I absolutely loved winter. And and I noticed, you know, I think maybe I was growing up in, in the 1970s, a period which was particularly snowy. But, but by the 1990s, it was noticeably less snowy. I mean, I paid attention to these things as a kid. When I was growing up, I, I would make a note of when I could start skating on our pond. And it was usually by the end of November, first week of December, that we could skate on our pond. And by the 1990s, it was already the case that that if you were lucky, you could skate on ponds by January. And I started thinking, you know, this is this is happening. It's happening and I don't like it. And And then Al Gore published his book, Earth in the Balance, and I remember reading that when it was first published. And, and he talked a lot about climate change. And I started thinking, yeah, okay, this is happening and it's, and it's going to get a lot worse. Al Gore's book, Earth in the Balance, appeared in 1992. Fourteen years later, in 2006, his film An Inconvenient Truth came out and drew a lot of attention. The scientific consensus is that we are causing global warming. I am Al Gore. I used to be the next president of the United States of America. This is Patagonia, 75 years ago, and the same glacier today. This is Mount Kilimanjaro, 30 years ago, and last year. Within the decade, there will be no more snows of Kilimanjaro. This is really not a political issue so much as a moral issue. Temperature increases are taking place all over the world, and that's causing stronger storms. Watching this film was a defining moment in Annabelle's life. She was 12 at the time. My mother and my sister and I went to the cinema and we watched a movie from Al Gore. Then we went home and we knew, okay, something terrible is going on and it's a threat to our planet. But somehow I don't remember that we kind of concluded, okay, now we're going to change our, our life. So what, what should we do now? How can we act or or something. It was just now we were a bit aware of it, but still we were not really consistent in our actions. And then after my apprenticeship at a bank, I worked there for two more years, but then I decided to go back to school. And there we had many hours where we discussed about those topics, especially also climate change. So I got more and more interested also in agriculture. And then I decided to study agriculture. And there at ETH, of course, in the in the first years, you learn a lot about the climate, which is essential for, for agriculture and, and everything else in natural sciences. So yeah, there I really got aware of it even more and also really the consequences and the details. And then kind of when I saw people on the streets in Zurich, I was just kind of activated. So, okay, now I see something where I can contribute. And Annabelle joined the protesters right away. I started 
supporting the climate strike movement at my university in the sense that we try to mobilize more students to join the strikes. So we printed flyers and distributed them to inform the students when the next strikes will happen. So I started with that. And then we had more ideas and we tried new approaches because it started to become not only about strikes, but but also about politics inside the university, but also there were other kinds of events that were organized. And then all of that activities, they, they lead me to other people and they had also other ideas. And so I got engaged in more and more different activities. Annabelle is heavily involved in the climate strike movement in Switzerland. What do the two professors, who are of older generations than the strikers, think about this movement? I think they're fantastic. I'm deeply impressed. When I was that age, I never did anything like what they've done. And, and I believe that they've really changed the world. And we're at a place in climate policy that we would not have been without them. It's amazing what governments around the world, most recently China, have done in terms of setting themselves ambitious targets, of, of essentially getting rid of all their emissions by 2050, in the case of China, 2060. Even two or three years ago, I don't think any of us saw that this was coming. And there were a few things that played a role in that. And one of the most important things, I think, was the climate youth movement, which really reframed the whole thing about the older generation robbing the younger generation of their future. Reto is also excited about the impact of the strikers. I would say the young generation has completely changed the way we talk about this in the in the public. It's not that the facts have changed or the numbers have changed. Two years ago, the predictions from the climate scientists were exactly the same, but they have been either ignored or, or they have been put into sort of one corner of either the ivory tower or the sort of left green wing thing. And the climate strike, the young generation has managed to make that into a mainstream topic and phrase this as a, a sort of a story that we should care about. And now there's a lot more people who say, yes, we want to change. And that has really boosted the at least the, the visibility and how people talk about it. It hasn't really changed the way we act. So we're still at the point where we need to actually do what we claim what we want to do. But at least the public discussion has been a lot more prominent and a lot more positive in that sense. One thing I don't understand is the strikers are protesting for, in a sense, old, let's say 30, 40 and even 50 year old demands. Science emphasized that the planet is in danger for a long time, but it took more or less till now that the protesters were listened to. And when it comes to climate change and taking action, the discussions are clearly very emotional. I think these emotional reactions and the fear is not because, and also the disagreement, the denial that we see, which actually has many parallel elements, is not because people disagree with the facts, it's because they disagree with the proposed actions that are based on those facts. Right? It's a question of clashes with ideology, particular values that you have. And that's where the debate is about. So it's not about the fact it's because the people disagree with the proposed action that follow from these facts. So when people are confronted with something that doesn't fit their worldview, 
then the first reaction is usually to say, well, it doesn't exist. So you deny the existence. If that doesn't work, then you say, well, it's not my fault. If that doesn't work, you say, well, maybe it's not that bad. Right? So you deny the, the, the consequences or the severeness of the consequences. If that doesn't work, then you say, well, it's too expensive or too hard to fix. And if that doesn't work, then you say, oh, well, there's nothing we can do about it. We'll just have to accept it. Right? We call these the five stages of denial. The, the psychologists talk about uh, what they call cognitive dissonance. It's, it's a well-established concept. Tony is optimistic for the very first time in his life regarding his field of research. On his daily commute from home to work by bike, it's about a 20-kilometer ride, Tony began with a very special ritual. I just wanted to start collecting empirical data of my own completely unscientifically. I started counting how many electric cars do I see every day biking into work and back. And because it seemed like there were very, very few. And I wanted to see, is, is this just my perception that I'm seeing almost no electric cars or is there actually change going on? And what I realized was there actually is change going on of exactly the kind we need. So when I first started doing this about four years ago, on average, I would see one or two electric cars a day biking in and back on my same route. And every year it's been rising. And now I'm up to about 20 or 30 that I see in total, but I've changed my rules. I used to count any electric car I would see, even if it was parked. And now I stopped counting the parked cars. Now I only count the ones that I see moving. And, and now I'm up at like 15 a day, and that's up from two four years ago. So we're talking about eight times more. On a more empirical scale? 99% of the cars you see are gasoline and diesel. It still seems like there are no electric cars there. But the growth rate on these things is exponential. You know, the jumps get bigger every year, and that's what we're seeing. It's actually really exciting. And we're seeing it with electric vehicles, which really are a very big part of the solution. We're seeing it with renewable energy. We're seeing those kinds of growth rates. And so it's below the surface. You don't really notice it, but it's there and it's sneaking up on us and it's starting to make a difference with emissions. Tony says renewable energy sources are growing about 15 to 20 percent per year globally. And roughly 75 percent of new investment into energy infrastructure is now in renewables. That's where Tony's optimism comes from. For about 20 years now, governments have been supporting the development of solar and wind power. And it's just in the last few years, as they've grown and as, as we've taken advantage of economies of scale and manufacturing, as our knowledge base has improved about how to make them more efficient and how to produce them more efficiently, their cost has come way down and, and they've become cheaper than fossil fuels. I think that is very understandable that he is so happy about that progress in the last centuries. And it's true that there probably happened many positive steps. But for me, overall, it feels still maybe we do three steps in the right direction, but then we do four steps in the wrong direction. <laughs> Because faced with the huge problems we have, those small steps don't bring us further. Every day we miss, every day adds more CO2 to the atmosphere, which stays there for a very long time and reacts for a very long time. So every day we go on like this, then this is a, a huge problem. And when you do those kind of work, like activism, you really think about it every day. And every day you, you know, 
puts more CO2 in the atmosphere. That's scarce. So as I know, those scientists that are working and pointing towards those problems for, for, for years, I don't want to know how that feels, how long they had to wait for small steps. So this puts another pressure on us. I mean, they already waited so long. I don't want to be also waiting for longer. Tony is somewhat optimistic. Annabelle can relate, but at the same time, she's uncertain that things are really turning to the better. And Reto? Sometimes I'm optimistic and sometimes I'm not, to be honest. But I think as a scientist, the question is not whether I'm optimistic. The question is, what can I contribute to this problem? And what I can contribute is not trying to, to say I'm going to save the world, but trying to provide the most accurate and the most useful information to those who make decisions. So I try to, at least in the scientific work, I try to separate my personal viewpoint a bit from my professional viewpoint. And I sometimes compare it to the doctor in the emergency room. The doctor in the emergency room wouldn't say, oh my God, this guy is hurt and he's bleeding and whatever. He would completely put away his personal viewpoint and the emotions and he would say, okay, what do I need to do to save that life? Right? And everything else comes later. We spoke about similarities dealing with uncertainty regarding COVID and climate. Uncertainty seems to be an unreliable factor that's hard to grasp. I tend to try to embrace the uncertainty rather than try to ignore it and pretend it's not there. Sometimes it's hard. We can look at the pandemic situation right now and sometimes I get frustrated and sometimes it's not knowing what's going to happen, how we're going to deal with it drives me almost crazy because as a scientist you try to be rational and you try to prepare and you try to do a useful optimal strategy and sometimes I, I get mad as well but in most cases it's more useful to say okay given the uncertainty that we cannot eliminate what's the best option we have at hand in, in, in trying to move forward. And how do you keep your calm if you get frustrated and angry? Is there Do you have methods Well, I have two little kids and they, uh, they, they keep me busy and they tell me and, and show me that there's other things in, in life that matter. Or I go outside and go into the mountains, go hiking, go skiing, and that helps to keep the balance a bit, yeah. We still have huge uncertainties about what it will be like in the future. But to a certain extent, actually, those uncertainties don't matter anymore because, I mean, they'll matter in terms of what we eventually face over the coming decades and have to adapt to. But in terms of whether or not we should solve the problem, they don't matter anymore. Because we've learned that the minimum costs we're going to face with climate change are high enough that it's worth the effort to avoid those. And then the other thing we've learned is we've learned how to do these technologies better and they've become cheaper to the point where they're almost free, really. If, if renewable energy doesn't cost any more over the long run, taking into account all the investment costs and everything, if it doesn't cost any more than fossil fuels, then more or less stopping climate change is free. Annabelle really tries to be hopeful as well, but she doesn't always succeed. She's uncertain if she and her studies can really make a difference in the future. At the climate strike at ETH, one of the slogans in the beginning was also what value has science today? What scientists are telling us since decades, we should take serious. And we also see it now in the pandemic that we should take those things serious. And why are we studying 
why are we maybe pursuing an academic career if nobody is taking us seriously? What is the point of studying if we don't really take it seriously, what we learn and, and what that means for our lives? One thing is sure, regarding uncertainty and climate, my three guests all want to push their causes forward and stop climate change. How fast will that happen? I guess it's logical that young people are more impatient and want climate change to stop this second, like now. The older generation of professors wants the same thing, but I guess in this case, the older, the more patient. Both of them are confident, Reto and Tony, that change will happen, maybe later than sooner. I guess age and handling uncertainty makes people more patient. But just as important is the impatience of the younger generation, of Annabelle. You're listening to a series of the ETH podcast about uncertainty in many fields. In the next episode, you'll meet Miriam Dunn. She's a cybersecurity specialist. And cybersecurity and uncertainty go hand in hand. I think we need to learn how to deal with uncertainties. So for me, it is really a mindset. It's not just technological solutions that you can plug into uh, anywhere and then, you know, magically uh, the issues are solved. So I think we need people everywhere that are aware that there will be uncertainties and that we again need to expect unexpected things to happen. Thank you for joining us. Tis Wachter's Audio Story Lab Sound designer Luki Fretz and me, Jennifer Kakshori, are glad you listened to the ETH podcast. <laughs>